If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John. We're going to be in John 4 this morning, uh, continuing on as we look in John. Um, So John chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. And as you do that, let me ask you this question. Have you ever had that, like, great burger? I mean, you know, that burger that you kind of just think about all the time. Uh, Not all the time. Hopefully you don't think about it all the time. Um, If you're married, you should probably think of your spells more than a burger. But... Um, or your school, if you're a student, or anything. But you remember that time where you bought a burger? Maybe you had that craving. And it maybe, maybe it's not a burger. Maybe it's shawarma or falafel or something like that, uh, or Thai food. Uh, but maybe you, you just, oh, yeah, you're like, oh, I'm going to go get that burger, and it's going to be awesome. And you bite into it, and it's juicy, and it's delicious. And it just hits the spot, you know? When, you, when that thing that you're eating hits the spot, You know what's the sad part about it? Is that once it hits the spot, it fades very quickly, doesn't it? As much as that burger was satisfying in the moment, at some point during the day, if if you had it at lunch, you're probably going to be hungry again. You're going to want that burger again. The, The satisfying feeling of eating that burger for the first time or whatever it may be, it's gone. It's temporary. It doesn't last forever. It's gone. See, that's the problem. Eventually, you're going to want another one or eat another. It only satisfies for a brief moment, and then it's gone. And here's the issue we have as we look in John. And as we look in John chapter chapter 4, we see this amazing story of Jesus interacting with this woman at the well. And every person... As, I, as we read this, every person in the world wants to know what will make him or her happy. Everybody. Even some people dive into food. We see that all the time. When people are depressed or anxious, sometimes people are eaters. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be food. It could be even working out. Good things become bad things when they begin to be what our source of satisfaction is. But when we're diving into these things and trying to find our satisfaction, we quickly find out that they don't last forever. They go away, and we always need to go back and get more and more and more. We are all looking to find happiness. We're all desperately seeking for a person, a place, or a thing that will meet our expectations, our needs, and our wants. So what will truly satisfy the desires of your heart? When you really think, sit down and you think about it this morning, as, as we're gathering and we're watching online, what is the thing that you just find that you just crave and you need and you want? Let me ask you with a follow-up question, does it last? In John chapter 4, verses 1 to 15, Jesus makes some big statements about how he alone can satisfy even showing his humanity to us in this passage. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. Follow along in verse 1 here. The word of the Lord says this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than Jesus, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was setting beside, was, sorry, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me uh, a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this time that we have to just worship and continue to worship you. Lord, this is indeed worship. This isn't a time for us to just sit and to have our ears tickled, but to reflect upon who you are and how you have specifically revealed yourself to us in your word. God, help us to cherish your word and to love it and to know it and to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of you. And Lord, as I preach, Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified, and I want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name. God, I can't do this on my own, so by your spirit, would you help me to preach the sermon with what is needed, with the appropriate affection and the necessary power. Use the sermon, God, to just bring glory to your name, to bring joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. In verses 1 to 6, you see this movement of what is happening. There's a new scene that is developing. John takes time to describe to us what is happening here. Now Jesus heard that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had begun to see that he was starting to baptize more people than John the Baptist was baptizing. More people were flocking to him rather than John the Baptist. And you could see, you could think about it, really. You can really actually kind of maybe sympathize with the religious leaders at the time. You know, they're getting, Jesus is getting in popularity, which means that theirs is shrinking. And they're starting to get worried. And he can feel the tension that is beginning to build in John's account of Jesus. Here Jesus starts off. We see in John 1, we see who he is and what he has done. He created all things. He is the word of God. And he's introduced by John the Baptist. But now you can start feeling tension that is beginning to grow in these few verses. The Pharisees have caught notice of who Jesus is and that he is starting to make more disciples than even John the Baptist was making. So as Jesus hears about these things, even though he's not the one who baptized, he leaves where he is, and he goes on a trek to go to another area called Galilee. And maybe you've heard of this place, this, this story of the Good Samaritan. Maybe you've heard of even uh, just the term, oh, that person, that individual is a Good Samaritan. They're a good person. 
See, in Samaria, let's get some background as to what's going on here. As you think about this, as Jesus begins to go on his trek from Judea to Galilee, he has to go through this region called uh, Samaria. And as he's entering into Samaria, we have to understand some of the historical context of what is happening here. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom that was divided. And they did not, they had no kings, no faithful kings that were faithful to who God is. So in punishment, God sends the Assyrians to wipe them out. And part of that process of wiping out was when the Assyrians came in and they conquered an area, they would take the people that were there and then they would ship those people to another place and then they would take other people from another place and they would put them there. It's a great way, really, of kind of squashing any idea of a revolt. When you suddenly turn from majority to minority, your friends are all gone, you're not going to be wanting to fight anybody. But in the process of what was happening, the Jews that were in Samaria began to intermarry with non-Jews. So now this flash forwards to now with Jesus, and there's some, a lot of animosity between these two people, between Jews and Samarians, because the Jews viewed them as uh, unpure, impure. They didn't follow all the purification laws that that Moses and the Ten Commandments and, and, and the Old Testament give. They were actually considered impure. And that's why we even see later on, later in, um, in, 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 verse, uh, in verse 9, where, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They really did not like each other. But as he had to pass through Samaria, Samaria was the, the shortest route for, from A to B that Jesus was going through. He had to go because it was a divine providential appointment as Jesus often, always, did the will of the Father. Uh, There's sometimes in Sunday school we were taught, oh, he had to go through, um, that he had to go through Samaria for some other reason. Uh, That it was was unique to, to go through Samaria. But actually, if we look into historical texts from like Josephus or any of those type of guys, we see accounts of, of Jews actually walking through Samaria all the time because it was the shortest route. Why in the world would I go all the way around if I could just walk through? The issue was the dealings with the Samaritans. So often they would just walk through. They wouldn't deal with the other people that were there. Jesus had to go because of divine providence, because there was a plan in place for Jesus to interact with this woman, the Samaritan woman. And, and then we, as he continues on, as verse 5 comes, he gets to a town in Samaria where we see uh, this deep history. We see how this is the place where Jacob's well, where Jacob, the patriarch, dug this well, and he gave it to his son, Joseph. You remember Joseph with all the multicolored coats who was sold into slavery, who, who went into Egypt, and actually God used that whole thing to provide for his people. There's a lot of deep history there. And as we see in verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Did you catch that? Did you see it? So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, Let's go back and think about who Jesus is and how John has shown us who Jesus is. In John 1.1, we see that the word 
that he is the word of God, that he is God. In John 14, we see that the word became flesh and we have seen his glory. In John 18, the, he is, Jesus is the only begotten God, has made the Father known. In, in, in chapter 2 of 11, we see that he manifests his glory by turning water into wine. And not just cheap wine, but the good stuff. He wasn't even limited by time. And, and, and later on in chapter 2, he declares, he declares that he would raise the torn temple down in three days. That he himself has the power over life and death. That he is the resurrection and the life. In chapter 3, as Pastor Matt was preaching a couple of weeks ago, he claimed to be the son of man who ascends and descends. And then in, 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 at the end of, of chapter 3, we see John the Baptist announce again that he is the one who is above all, who, who comes from heaven. Yet, here in verse 6, we see the one who is all these things becomes weary and tired from his journey. See, the only... The only explanation that this is even possible is that fully God, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. This is important to understand. In theological terms, we call this the hypostatic union. This is the incarnation. God adding to himself humanity, as Augustine would say. This is the raw humanity of Jesus as shown in the incarnation. Jesus experiences fatigue and even exhaustion. So he comes and he sits down at this well at the sixth hour, which is important because at the sixth hour, that's at noontime. That's lunchtime in my books. I've been to the Middle East, and at noon, nobody's doing anything. They're just like eating food and having a nap because it's so hot. It is so hot that you're not, you're not carrying a cistern of water on your shoulder down to the, to the well to get water at high noon. You do that in the morning when it's cool or at night when it's cool, not in the, in the afternoon. But what we see here is Jesus' weariness. And I have to ask myself, what does his weariness mean for me? What does it mean for you? See, Jesus knows what it means to be weary. He, he knows what it means to be tired. You know, uh, you could talk to anybody. This year has been a long year. I understand. It, is, it has been a long year, and lots of things have happened over this year. Many of you have gone through trials that are unbelievable. You've lost loved ones. You've lost jobs. You've lost. You've lost on top of there being a, this, this pandemic that locks us down and keeps us from each other, the very relationships that we need. We understand, Jesus understands your weariness because he was weary. Jesus is not only one who can sympathize with you. We see this in Hebrews 4, verse 15. Jesus knows your weariness. Are you tired? Are you fatigued? Do you feel like you can't go on anymore? Then Hebrews 4, 15 comes and says that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. And yet again, I'm reminded of that right here. As Jesus walks onto this, into this providential uh, uh, appointment with the Samaritan woman, he becomes tired and weary. 
Jesus is, is not only the one who can sympathize with you, not only is he one that understands your weariness, but he is the only one that can also satisfy it. As we continue on in, in, in verses 7 to 15, Jesus alone is the one who can satisfy. In these first verses in 1 to 6, you see that Jesus understands our weariness. Jesus becomes weary and therefore can understand our weariness. But as we enter into verses 7 to 15, we see that not only can he understand our weariness, but he is the only one who can sustain us and satisfy us. Remember the burger. Every time I go and I get that wonderful burger, I still want another one. But how many times in my tiredness and in my weariness, the first thing that I go to is maybe my phone to flip through Facebook or TV or food, whatever it may be. And I, and I skip the very one that Jesus himself describes himself as the living water. He alone can satisfy. Even in my tiredness, even in the most uh, depths of despair, he alone is the one who can satisfy. But not only is he the one that can satisfy, he's the only, he, he understands and he knows. So when I cry out to God, when I cry out to God, when I'm tired and I'm weary, I feel like I can't go on anymore. When you cry out to God and you feel like you're tired, you're weary, you can't go on anymore. When you feel like God doesn't care, remind yourself of this. Jesus also was weary. He understands. I don't cry to a God who doesn't know. I cry to a God who does know, who sympathizes with me in my weakness. But he also gives himself as the only one who can satisfy. As, as the woman continues on. Now keep in mind, this is a woman who is getting water at noon. And we're going to be introduced to this more later on as we get into verses 16 next week. But she's there. She's walking down. From the, from the city, she's walking down to get water from the well. She's carrying these heavy cisterns made out of clay. These aren't light, like, Tupperware things, okay? You know, these are heavy. And the woman from Samaria came to draw water, as verse 7 says, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. See, Jesus uses this time to expose his own humanity to minister to this woman. Think about how this exposes the heart of Christ. Think about how what we have learned about who Jesus is. He is God. He is creator of the universe, sustainer of the universe. Yet he comes to this woman and says, I need a drink. What does this show about the humility of Christ? Think about how this shows his humility. It is unbelievably humbling to show your need to others. And I think about this with myself. Uh, when we first moved to London, uh, we bought these sheds, and on the boxes it said, two people. And I distinctly said to myself, I don't need two people. I've got this. I don't know why, probably because of some sort of perverted manliness mentality, I don't know. I did get it done. 
probably should have had more people with me. But at the end of the day, the root of me not asking for anybody's help in building these sheds was a pride. See, Jesus comes and he uses this opportunity to expose uh, his humanity, but also to open doors to ministry. Imagine what would have happened if I said to myself, hey, you know what, I know I could probably do this by myself, but maybe I could bring, I don't know, Jonathan over with me and we could, you know, we could talk. We could get to know one another as we're building these sheds. See, Jesus uses this opportunity to do this. Here is the creator of the universe who humbles himself. It's even more humbling to ask a lowly person to meet that need. The holy Christ begged for water from an adulterous woman. That is the only reason why she was getting water at noon, was so that nobody else would see her doing it. The created word communicated his need to a defiled creature. Think about it. Jesus' willingness to reveal his need opened the door for ministry. Surely he can reach down to you in the deepest of your muck. You are not too dirty for Jesus. And nobody should be too dirty for us either. See, one of the things about discipleship is that it's messy. When you're walking with people, and you're seeking to present them mature in Christ, as Paul says in Colossians, as you're pushing them and encouraging them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, that means that you have to step in their dirt as well. You might get muddy in the process. See, Jesus in his humility, he exposes his need. He gets down into this woman's dirt, into this deepest amok, and, and he begins this conversation. Jesus would do what was right no matter the circumstances. Even if the circumstances lent themselves to misinterpretations, suggesting that he uh, be in the wrong. So often people see the right they should do, recognize it, could be misinterpreted, and allow fear to prevail over courage. See, one aspect of Jesus' greatness of character is that the fear of man never prevailed over what virtue prompted him to do. Something we need to think about as we enter into a very difficult world that we probably haven't seen ever before. And as we continue on in verse 9, there's surprise that begins to come up in this woman, right? So the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? This is a legitimate thing, a legitimate question. Not only... Not only is she Samaritan, a Samaritan, where Jews did not correspond with one another, they disliked each other strongly, but she was also a woman. And not only was she a woman, but she was a woman who was coming out in the middle of the day to get water. She was surprised that Jesus would even come here. But the issue is this. The surprise is not that Jesus would even speak to the Samaritan woman, but that he would even drink from the same bucket as her. Because there's this lax understanding upon the Samaritans of, of, of ritual cleanliness. So by this, by, by a Jew interacting with Samaritan and sharing food and water with them, they're essentially making themselves impure. They would have to go through a whole ritual cleansing again. You know what's interesting about this? Jesus not once 
is the one who def gets defiled when he interacts with the dirty. And here's another example. Even when he interacts with, the, with, with people who are sick and, and have leprosy, and maybe they touch him, he takes the time to touch them. Because he's not the one. He purifies. People don't defile him. He's God. He's Jesus. And as he continues on, in verse 10, there's a surprise in her voice. Everything about the scene is wrong. Everything. And that's why she's surprised. But Jesus comes along in verse 10. And he says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, the gift of God, it's not something, what he's about to talk about is not something that she could earn. It's not something that she could hustle hard enough. It's not something that she could work hard enough at. It is a gift. A gift. And the woman may, asked her, may have asked herself all those questions. Not earned? Not worked for? A gift? A gift God has given me? I only knew how, how I, who he was speaking to, who I was speaking to. What is this, what is this thing of living water? See, living water in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is the sense of eternal life. It is the thing that satisfies. When I was in, uh, when I spent some time in Jordan, the very interesting thing is that you have, I think it was 11 cities, if I'm remembering correctly. But if you look on a map and you see where all the cities are, they actually fall, follow a spring. Every city is built on a well. See, here in Canada, we have so much water, we don't know what to do with it. We really do. Like I could, well, I wouldn't because you'd probably come up with another arm, but you could go swimming in the, in the Thames River. You could. It's right there. Right? If I dig deep enough, I'll probably hit water underneath there too. We have so much water we don't know what to do with. But in the Middle East, water is literally life or death. And we get it. Oh, yeah, life and death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't get it. But that's what it was like there. But Jesus comes along and he describes himself as living water. Even though this woman may get this water, she's going to have to go back and get water. But really Jesus is pointing at her need in her heart. She keeps looking for happiness in all these other places, trying to seek satisfaction in whatever she can. And she's just never satisfied. And Jesus comes and says, I'm the living water. I'm the one who can satisfy you. Water is needed to sustain life. Uh, at this time in my uh, devotional time, I try to, I always, I'm always on a plan. Uh, I try to read the, through the Bible each time. And right now, one of the aspects is I'm in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, uh, the word of the Lord says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Or in Jeremiah 17, 13, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in, in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain, the fountain of living water. 
this woman, along with God's people that are, are talking about here in Jeremiah, have rejected the living water. They are trying to fill that desire by filling broken cisterns. The woman, as we see later on, as if, and I encourage you to read all of John 4, but as we see later on, she, in, in the next verse, in verse 16, Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right. I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one now uh, have is not your husband. She keeps trying to be satisfied. Oh, the first one's not good enough. I'm going to go to the next one. Oh, that one's not working. I'm going to go to the next one. Now she's just settling. She had rejected God as a living water. See, and what Jesus is offering to her and what Jesus is offering to you is himself. A cleansing from sin. He himself is the fountain of living water. He alone is the one who can satisfy. Are you filling up at the fountain of living water today? Or are you busy digging for yourself cisterns that are just going to be leaking? And he continues in verse 11. Where do you get this living water, the woman says to Jesus. And all she could keep thinking about during this whole conversation was her bucket and that she was thirsty. Like her literal bucket. To the point that she says in verse 12, are you greater? And Jesus obviously answers, yeah, I am greater than Jacob. As he says in verse 13. But let's stop here in verses 13 and 14. See, the woman seems so uh, to be more obsessed with the actual literal spring. But if the Samaritan woman drinks the water Jesus gives, she will become like the bride that we see in Song of Solomon. A well of living water, as Song of Solomon 4.15 says. Because the fountain of living water flows in her. That is what Isaiah mentions in Isaiah 58, verse 11. And the Lord, I love this passage, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Doesn't that sound great? I think it does. We're in a scorched place, aren't we? People keep trying to find water. They keep trying to find living water. They keep trying to find satisfaction in other things. And this is what Jesus offers to this woman. And this is what Jesus offers to you and me. A relationship that would satisfy her and provide her the life and love that she craved so desperately. It's not just enough water, but an overflowing of water. Jesus creates a contrast with contemporary, with the eternal satisfaction. Just like eating that burger or drinking a glass of water, even if it's a legitimate pleasure, will pass. Jesus says, I am not going to, I will always satisfy. See, every person in this world wants to know what it will be like for him or her to be happy. We're all desperately seeking for that right person or that right place or that thing that will, that will meet our expectations and our needs and our wants. But it shows our sin. 
how we keep grasping to other things, how we keep filling our broken cisterns with water, and we just keep filling them. But they keep leaking. We value the gift of the giver of the gift. So what will truly satisfy the desires of your heart? How are you seeking to be satisfied? Living water is clean, fresh, flowing, and it's not stagnant, stale, or squalled. Living water tastes good and brings refreshing relief that enables renewal of effort with joy and gratitude. This is what Jesus is offering the woman. This is what Jesus is offering you and me. Jesus offers the life-giving cleansing that tastes good, satisfies the thirst, and makes those who drink life-giving givers themselves. See, we are all guilty of forsaking the fountain of living water. That just doesn't mean we will seek that this time. It doesn't mean that, uh, it means that we always are trying to be satisfied in something else. But again, Jesus comes here and he says, I am the living water. I am alone and the one that can give you all of these things, but I also am the one that gives you eternal life. Have you accepted the gift of living water that can only come from Jesus? It's a gift. It's a gift for you. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Or John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the living water. And to seek anything else, you will never be satisfied in anything else in this life. But even in the next life, you will, you will find that you are eternally separated from the living God. But all of this is a sign, we see. This thirst, this never-ending thirst is a sign of our need, of, of our sin. This satisfaction in life is near the root of all kinds of sin. Why do people cheat on their spouse? Why? why? Why do people abuse drugs or alcohol? And let me tell you, uh, when I read statistics like in Toronto, how opioid use is, has doubled over this year, last year, over the year before, everyone can blame pandemic, everyone can blame uh, that we don't have enough programs, everyone can blame all these things, and there's a factor of blame in there, I understand that. Ultimately, the root of it is they're seeking to be satisfied in things that don't satisfy. Why, why, why do we, myself included, mindlessly binge watch ridiculous amounts of TV? Did you know that you could get a pair of socks that will stop Netflix uh, when it doesn't recognize that you're moving? So it'll pause it. They're already expecting that you're going to binge so much TV that you're going to fall asleep in front of the TV. Or how about scrolling endlessly on Facebook or Twitter? Why, why do people steal or commit suicide? All of these things and more happen because people haven't found happiness. And here Jesus comes and he says, I am the living water. It is a gift. Take it. I will satisfy. Life won't get easier. I will never say life will be easy. 
On this side of the grave, you are promised hardships, but you can face those hardships with satisfaction and a joy that goes beyond all understanding. Why do we keep looking for things? Every person in the world wants to know what will make them happy or sad, or make him or her happy. We're all desperately seeking for that person, that place, or the thing that will meet our expectations, that needs, and this wants. And Jesus comes and he says, I am the living water. I want you to think about this right now. Not later, right now. What have you been using to satisfy your thirst today? Honestly, what was the first thing you looked at this morning? I guarantee you the first thing I looked at this morning was Facebook and Instagram. What was the first thing? Have you been looking for a person to fulfill you in the way that only God can? Married people have this problem all the time. Single people, as they look for a spouse, have this problem. As they continue to look for for a spouse all over the place, yes, it's good to be married, but when it takes your satisfaction over your satisfaction in Christ, you are valuing the gift over the giver of gifts. Why do we keep jumping into one relationship or another? Why do we keep jumping from one vacation to another? Have you ever seen more people angry than when the government says you can't fly to some sunny location? That's the thing that we're going to get upset about? Is that I can't go to Florida? What are the things that are satisfying? What are the things that you are using to satisfy your thirsts? I understand it's disappointing. I get it. But disappointment and satisfaction are two different things. Jesus comes to each of us. He comes to us. He comes to me. He comes to you. And he says, come to me and drink. Discover that I am the only one who can quench your thirst. Come to me. He has come as the old hymn has said. Make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So if you have the living water, go and seek to share it as well to people who are dying of thirst in this wasteland. But ask yourself that question, what are you using to satisfy your thirst? Because only Jesus can. So what, you may ask yourself. Jesus is the gift of living water that alone can satisfy. The most important question in all of this is in verse 10. In verse 10 it says, And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is the gift of living water that alone can satisfy Do you know the one who alone can satisfy? The one who can sympathize with your weariness and your weakness and your tiredness and your thirsty? Do you know him? Do you understand him? Jesus is the gift of living water that alone can satisfy. See, every person is looking for what will make him or her happy. The woman at the well is looking for what will make her happy. You are looking for what will make you happy, especially in this society, which is always based upon do what makes you happy. But Jesus comes and says, you will not have any satisfaction 
until you are seeking to be satisfied in Christ. It is an overflowing water, one that will impact your relationship with other people and who he is and what he has done for you. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us. I thank you for this reminder that we see uh, at the beginning of this interaction with, with Jesus and, and this woman. Lord, I pray that you would use it to remind us once again that we have a Savior who can sympathize. We have a high priest who can sympathize. In our tiredness, in our weakness, God, you understand, you know. So I pray that we would cry out to you, not those fake cries, but we would truly cry out to you. You welcome us to come and beat your chest. And Lord, I pray that we would do that, knowing that you understand. But Lord, not only do you understand our tiredness and our weakness, you alone are the only one who can satisfy our thirst. So Lord, I pray that we would rest in you, that we would, we would just understand that you alone are the one who can satisfy. You are the living water. You are the fountain of living water. And Lord, as we become more aware of that, as we rest more in that and take deep daily drinks of that living water, I pray that we would be sent out into this dark wasteland and declare to these people, Lord, that you are the living water, that you alone can satisfy. Amen.